0: So, let's get stuck into some uh, questions. (coughs) Quite a few questions here, uh, articulating kind of the same question. Um, In Corinthians, Paul says to imitate him uh, quite a lot. Uh, Does Paul think he has it all sorted? Um, It almost sounds arrogant. What do you think?
1: Uh, Yes and no. (laughs) Paul is not arguing. I think that he's perfect. Far from it. Paul doesn't argue his sinlessness at any point in this. But what he does argue very strong. you're quite right, the, the imitate me thing is very strong in Corinthians, very strong. Uh, what he does argue for is his apostleship. And he urges the Corinthians to imitate him not because he's a perfect human being, but because he's an apostle, and just as he urges them to Im- to to believe his teaching his message because he's an apostle not because he's a perfect person so he urges them to imitate his gospel lifestyle in certain respects not because he's got it all taped and he's a perfect person but because his gospel lifestyle is apostolic as well as his teaching now Obviously, there is a difference between somebody's teaching and their lifestyle. They're not the same thing. But, of course, what somebody says and how they live are very closely joined up, really. And is it not true that we learn from people whether they really believe what they say by whether they also do the things that they say? Paul is not arguing in 1 Corinthians that he is the perfect person what he is arguing is that his teaching is authoritative because he's an apostle and his lifestyle the pattern that in which that teaching is lived out is also authoritative because he's an apostle um, now it's worth saying again he's not asking them to imitate him in every way he doesn't say You must all leave your day job and go and be an itinerant evangelist to the Gentile world. He doesn't say that to them, but he does say that in certain respects, they are to imitate him. And that's what the Corinthians don't want to do. Uh, Just worth uh, tying that one up again. Look at chapter 10. Chapter 10 is probably the clearest example of this and the most helpful for working out in what respects he wants them to imitate him. It's a great summary statement of what he wants them to do, this. Whether you eat, uh, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Don't upset people unnecessarily, he says. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not because I'm a man pleaser and I love people to affirm me, but because I'm not seeking my own advantage but that of many that they may be saved, and I want you to imitate me in doing that. So what he's asking them to imitate is his, one, salvation-orientated, two, um, not pleasing himself, but working for the salvation of others' ministry. That's the lifestyle he wants them to to live. Um, uh, Because that is what brings glory to God. Now, of course, that is translatable into all sorts of situations in life. You don't have to be the itinerant missionary to do that. Everybody can live a life uh, which is uh, seeking the salvation of others and not putting your own comfort and glory in the center of things, but the the rescue of others in place. So I I hope that clarifies it. He has an apostolic message and an apostolic lifestyle. And the apostolic message is, to something, is something we're to believe. And the apostolic lifestyle, namely living not for yourself but for the salvation of others to the glory of God, is the lifestyle we're to embrace. And that's what the Corinthians don't want to embrace because it's too uncomfortable. That is that helpful for people?
0: Okay. Uh, what's the difference between building up and puffing up? Um
1: the puffing up thing comes in chapter 8 I think that probably it's the what it's centred on Uh, Corinthian knowledge uh, chapter 8 verse uh, 1 is self-promoting they think well of themselves because they know things they think how spiritual we are because of the gifts they have. Uh, Paul uh, wants them rather. Twelve to fourteen is a good example of this. Paul wants them to use what they are and what they know and what they have for the good of others, not for self-promotion. That that idea is also there in that little summary bit that we had at the end of chapter ten. I'm not seeking my own good. But the good of many that they may be saved. So I think the big difference between building up and puffing up is that puffing up is self-building up, and the building up thing is
0: building up other people rather than yourself. I've got one here entitled the relationship question. The relationship, the relationship question. Uh, chapter seven, uh, verses twenty-five to twenty-nine. What what does Paul mean here by the present distress? and what is the general message to the single person brother or sister along with those married or betrothed
1: yeah all right um <laughs> the present distress is an important issue look at verse let me read from verse 25 now concerning the betrothed i have no command from the lord but i give my judgment as one who by the lord's mercy is trustworthy i think he means there that he hasn't got a specific word from script, from the Lord's words to quote in relation to this, whereas he has in relation to marriage, and he's done that already. Um, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. You bound to a wife, don't seek to be free. Free from a wife, don't seek a wife. If you do marry, you've not sinned. If a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet, those who marry will still have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Uh, there are different takes on what the present distress means. Um, some argue, and not without good reason, that the present restress, the present distress, uh, corresponds to a period of particular hardship in this part of the world. There's a big famine. In the Mediterranean, around this time, and uh, he may be describing uh, he may the argument here may in part be based on we 're in a tough period now um, difficulties will come on people on people 's relationships. Others argue that the present distress is. Uh, the distressing nature of the difficulties of this world age Uh, and um, that uh, there are difficulties that belong to this world age uh, which might lead you uh, to remain as you are in life. It's very difficult to down firmly on which of those in my view is the right one and in 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 any situation where it's difficult to come down firmly on which of those is the right one you need to ask yourself how important is it to know which of those is the right one and i suspect actually that it isn't that important and uh, that there may be true uh, let's put this more generally um This age we live in is characterized by distress, is it not? Lots of difficulties happen. There are particular examples of terrible distress in this age. But they are just particular symptoms of the wider difficulties of living in this difficult age. So actually I don't think it matters too much which you're going on about. And actually I think that the, the things that Paul mentions later on um, verse 29 following. Let me just read verse 29. Uh, these apply both to particular distressing circumstances and to the more general difficulties of living in this age. Um, there, may be, there may be times when some things are more difficult than others, but there are always these sorts of difficulties in this age. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on let those who have wives live as though they had none. I'm going I'm to say what I think that means in a moment. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Whatever the present distress is, he's got the transience of this present age in view. So, Um, I think there are things here that are true generally. Now, what does he mean by saying um, those who have wives live as though they had none? Husband, um, can I ask you, do you think that will be good for your wife to pretend she doesn't exist? Is that what he's saying, do you think? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, you You can't imagine that the person who wrote Ephesians 5 husbands love your wives and give themselves up for them as Christ loved the church can possibly be meaning things have changed pay no attention to her from now on he can't be meaning that I think, he's con- what, I think what he's trying to do is he's using slightly hyperbolic language to, um, to get the Corinthians to think beyond this present age and to give eternal perspective to things Um, One of the, I think I mentioned it very briefly on the first evening, one of the pressures in chapter 7 is it seems that the Corinthians feel under pressure to change their circumstances in life because certain things are viewed as being more spiritual than others in this age. I, I think the key verse in this chapter is verse 17 Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Uh, More literally, that's in which God has called him. Namely, don't think that the situation in which you were converted is one you have to escape from in order to be a more spiritual person in this age. And it seems that in this chapter there is pressure for the Corinthians to move in various directions. Beginning of the chapter, to abstain from sex in marriage, if they're married, because that's more spiritual. Uh, Later in the chapter, if they're married to somebody who's not a Christian, to divorce that person because it's more spiritual not to be married to an unbeliever. Um, Later in the chapter, if you're betrothed, better not to marry because that's more spiritual. There are various slightly ascetic tendencies at work in Corinth, which this chapter is written against. And he's basically saying don't think for a second that by changing your status you somehow become a more spiritual person you don't get more status by becoming you don't get more spiritual by becoming married you don't get more spiritual by becoming single or remaining single however he does want to say that singleness has certain advantages in the gospel age it's not more it's not more spiritual But it does have certain flexibilities. And those are worth paying attention to. For in a a sex-mad culture like ours, we have a marriage-mad Christian culture. Because that's the way to have sex. (laughs) We are as preoccupied with sex as the outside world is, but we know it has to be done in marriage, so we're preoccupied with marriage. And everybody thinks that if you're not married, you're a less spiritual person. That's just veneering the values of our age with a spiritual gloss. Paul wants to say here, there's quite a strong thing here, there are real advantages to singleness in this gospel age. Um, uh, where are we? Um, later in the chapter, verse thirty two, following. Um again I'm not, I think, let me read verse 32 following, I want you to be free from anxieties the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord but the married man is anxious about worldly things how to please his wife, now I don't think he's meaning that pleasing your wife is worldliness in a negative sense what I think he means is that if you're married you have to give attention to your wife you can't not give attention to your wife Ephesians 5, it's just a wrong thing to do it's ungodly Um, but there are great flexibilities uh, in being single Uh, verse 28 another example if you do marry you've not sinned there's nothing unspiritual about getting married and if a betrothed woman marries she's not sinned yet those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that if you're a married person you will have to deal with anxieties that an unmarried person will not have to deal with the trouble is your age and in this culture you think that being married is the solution to everything well it's the solution to all the things that an unmarried person doesn't want a solution to <laughs> it gives you many good things being married but it gives you a whole set of troubles and concerns that you wouldn't have if you didn't get married you're married about how your husband and wife is if they get ill you experience the knock-on from that if they have troubles in them in their in their physical or mental health you have experience with that uh, If bad things happen to them, they happen to you too. If you have children, you spend years and years and years and years being rightly anxious about your children and all kinds of things to do with them. Uh, When your partner dies, it's a terrible wrench for you, a total heartache, especially if you've been close and worked hard together. If your children get into trouble or have difficult times in life, it's absolutely shredding for you as a parent. My son's been very ill this year with depression absolutely been shredding as a parent if i hadn't been married i wouldn't have that on the other hand if i hadn't been married i wouldn't have a son and he's terrific you know so i think what paul is saying here is he wants the corinthians to be open-eyed about the reality of both states in this temporary age there are good things in both of them neither is more spiritual than the other one gives greater flexibility than the other and delivers from certain necessary heartaches, but you're not, more spiritual, you're not less spiritual if you get married. He's just kind of leveling the playing field a bit, and I think that's very helpful, and it's worth us hearing that, I think, um, in this age. I love being married. It's terrific. I wouldn't swap it for anything, but it is not the solution to all the things I thought it would be a solution to when I was single. Have you found that, folks, being married? Those of you who are married, uh, has it delivered? Has it it delivered you from all the problems you had when you were single? No. (laughs) It gives you a whole set of good things and a whole other set of problems that you didn't anticipate at all. I don't want to sound negative, but it's terrific. It's a good God-given (laughs) thing. But nothing in this age, nothing in sorry, nothing in this age, is perfection and everybody's got to be open-eyed about that.
0: Um, Can you explain a little more about Paul's view of the role of women in church gatherings in the context of 1 Corinthians? Um, Why can't we use this as a model for today or should we use this as a model for today? And tied to that as well, should women wear head coverings? Um, Is this the Corinthians thoughts or or Paul's modifications?
1: Yeah, 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 okay, good. Uh, There's just a few questions in there. Uh, let me try and let me try and deal with some of that. Um, it's quite difficult with New Testament epistles to understand quite what's going on in the ground all the time, and more often than not, you get a you get a clue, you get ideas about what might be going on on the ground but it's quite difficult to absolutely pin down what they're doing. And as I mentioned before, I think there are good things about that. Uh, This is true in other areas of the Bible too. For example, if you try and define what precisely is the heresy that's being taught in Colossae, in the Colossian church, well, you get some ideas about it from the letter, but pinning it down In detail is really hard, and I take it that that's God's part of God's design in the way Scripture has come to us—that we get a broad shape of things, but not always the fine detail. Um, The trouble about having the fine detail is that if our situation doesn't exactly correspond to the fine detail, we'll think this passage has nothing to say to us because that situation is not quite like mine. One of the benefits of having some idea but not being able to pin it down exactly is that you have to think, okay, what are the principles going on here uh, and how might they apply in my situation which looks a bit different from this but I can see some similarities. you See what I mean by that? So I think... Um, it's quite difficult to pin down the Corinthian gatherings exactly and a number of aspects about it. Quite difficult to pin down exactly what they were doing in the Lord's Supper, for example, in chapter 11. Quite difficult to pin down how often these gatherings that are being mentioned here are happening. Quite, often, quite difficult to pin down how regularly these gatherings are happening. Is we, you know, we very quickly say, well, this is what the Corinthian gathering was like. Therefore, this is what our church service on Sunday morning ought to be or oughtn't to be like, depending what take we're taking on the Corinthian gatherings. But is this gathering their weekly get-together or is it not? And is this all that happened in their gathering which might or might not be the weekly get-together or not? You know, you've got to be just a little bit careful from saying the Corinthians met we must meet like that or not meet like that, depending on what we think is going on. So with that in mind, uh, let me give you a, at least a, a thought, I think, about what you might take from this uh, to um, contemporary life. Uh, and inevitably, I'll pull in bits and pieces from other uh, other parts of the Bible in, in relation to this, because you can't read it in isolation. Just remember again, this is not an instruction manual for how to do your Christian meeting. It is correction for the Corinthian dysfunction about how they are doing their Christian meeting and that's a rather different thing. This doesn't tell us everything we need to know about what to do in church gatherings. Um, chapter 11, very, very complicated chapter 11. Um, work through it with a good commentary. For what it's worth, I think uh, that um, the example of hair and head covering um, is an example of how behavior in the Corinthian congregation is out of touch with the surrounding culture in unhelpful ways. I think there's good evidence to suggest that if you'd lived in Greco-Roman culture of the day, you would have been able to spot at a distance a married woman. Now you can't do that in our culture, but you would have in that culture, because uh, characteristically a married woman would wear her hair up and um, kind of woven in with a head with a with a cloth headpiece and it would be a normal sign of being a married woman that you would live like that, that that's, what, that's how you do your hair. Now, we don't have that kind of... We can't walk down the street and spot a married woman from an unmarried woman. You just can't. Um, by the way she dresses or the way she does her hair. But in that culture, I think you could and I think what's happening here remember I, I mentioned earlier on, earlier on in the weekend this idea of the Corinthian preoccupation with their freedom in Christ Jesus they feel free to do nearly anything they feel free back in chapter 5 to commit grotesque sexual immorality which the culture around them thinks is scandalous I think this is another example a bit like that Uh, They feel free not to carry around in the way they deport themselves the normal cultural markers of marriage. And I think it's particularly the married relationship that's in view here. The husband-wife thing is very much in view in chapter 11. And I think it's an example of their we've got it now already thing that so pervades this letter. They think they've got... The kind of spiritual life now that frees them from their normal, culturally driven responsibilities. And at numerous points in the letter, Paul says to them, you're not free in that kind of way. You're not free to be sexually immoral. You're not free to do things your culture finds scandalous. And I think their culture finds the female hair thing that they're doing scandalous. So I think that's what's going on in, in, the, in that bit of chapter eleven. Um, there's also the thing about uh, women prophesying, verse five, or praying. Um, I take it I, I'm going to I take the line that I don't think that I think that means that in the Corinthian gatherings, Paul thinks it's legitimate for women to speak. Now, again, of course, it it depends what you mean by prophesying here, and you've got to unpack chapter 12 to 14 uh, to get that. But some people have argued that the first part of chapter 11 is about what what husband and wife do in private in the home, and the second part of chapter 11 from verse 17 onwards is about the public gathering, but I personally am not convinced that that's exegetically legitimate. I think people who are doing that are doing that in order to pursue a line that says no women can ever say anything instructional in church on Sunday. Um, and I just don't think that's exegetically justified. There's no obvious move uh, from poor. Um, there's no obvious move um, from public to private. I think in chapters, in, in from the beginning to the end of chapter. Um, um, Eleven, uh, and he he seems to assume that women will pray and prophesy, and men will. Um, and he urges the Corinthians to work for prophecy, Have we got a prophecy question coming up? No. no. Does anybody want to talk about the prophecy thing at all? Yeah, well, yeah. go <laughs> on. <laughs> um, again, we tend because. the the big issue in chapter 14 is unintelligible speech versus intelligible speech that's the thing you can definitely say about the tongues prophecy divide in this chapter Um, we tend to think we tend because of the relative paucity of description about what he's actually talking about when he means prophecy to fill that void with our own personal stuff. So some people have equated prophecy with preaching and said, well, women can't do that. So the beginning of chapter 11 must be private women prophesying. Uh, Some have equated prophecy with the spontaneous, the Lord has said to me, I've had a vision kind of thing um, and interpreted the chapter in that direction. For what it's worth, I'm not that happy with either of those. (laughs) And I'm not sure that there's anything described in these chapters in 12 to 14 that equates with modern preaching. Nothing wrong with modern preaching. Paul does it all the time. But I'm just not sure that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about something the Corinthians did. The most interesting thing, I think, about chapter 14, we'll come back to the women's thing in a moment, uh, but this is a necessary digression. The most interesting thing about chapter 14 is... um, Where are we? Uh, Yeah, this is very interesting. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Now, that's really interesting, isn't it? He says, if one's talking and somebody else wants to speak, the first one has to stop. Isn't that a weird thing? And I think that's slightly against the prophecy being described here, being, I have a word from the Lord and you must hear it. Because you would expect it to be the other way round if it were like that that the speaker has to speak and finish what he's saying and then somebody else kick in on what the Lord has said to them. What I think this opens up, that remember we said that earlier on he, he restricts their prophesying from many to few. The other thing I think he does by doing this is he allows for the person speaking to be interrupted. And I think that allows for correction, development of ideas uh, working together on an idea if you like contrast that with where we start in this chapter verse 26 when they come together everybody wants to speak and all at once paul is modifying their behavior in the direction of speak in order don't think that what you've got to say is the thing everybody needs to hear. Somebody else might have to something to contribute to that helpfully. Do you see what I mean by that? Now we jump so quickly from we we jump so quickly from what's prophecy here, what's the equivalent now, without thinking what is the situation we're talking about here and how is he modifying it? He's modifying it in the direction of order, um, mutual upbuilding. Other people might have something useful to say, not just me, so I might have to shut up when somebody else hang on we need to do, we need to explore that further, or hang on i 'm not sure that's quite right. Let me say something. Do you see what he's introducing into there they're very they want to speak in a self centered way he 's encouraging them to speak in a cooperative and mutually <coughs> upbuilding way. So I just want to be slightly cautious between before saying this is how the Corinthians did it wrong we must do it differently and draw very straight lines between them and us because the bit of the Corinthian meeting that Paul is describing and we don't know if it's the whole of the Corinthian meeting the bit of the Corinthian meeting that he's describing is something which is slightly foreign to us they obviously were doing something slightly foreign much more like your home group I imagine. Which tends to be everybody speaking, doesn't it? But not always in a corporate and harmonious and mutually upbuilding way. You know, we, we sometimes just desperate to get in our thing so that everybody will think we're really clever, and that's got that rings a lot of bells with this chapter. Do you see what I mean? It's quite difficult to make the jumps. Now, can I say that I think chapter eleven assumes that in that kind of context, the mutually upbuilding, various people have got say, things to say, context that might be helpful. Paul is inclusive of women, uh, not exclusive of them. What you do with your um, more one-to-many proclamation in a mixed gathering, you have to go to other places in the Bible for, I think. Uh, 1 Timothy 2 is relevant there, that kind of stuff. I, I, one could go on about this subject for absolutely ages. Is that any help to the question? <laughs> I'm not going to say if it's not. So... Um, Anybody want to ask any qualifying questions on that? I think you just need to be a bit a co- bit careful in making the jumps. Paul knew their situation, and so did they. We don't know exactly what they were doing. We just need to be a little bit careful. But there are helpful principles to apply. about? Yes, it's very interesting. He he has very little in this letter to say about church leaders, which is very interesting. Now, it's a big open question about why there's very little. For example, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, uh, I suspect it may reflect the issues going on in the congregation. 1 and 2 Timothy are written to the church in Ephesus. Reading between the lines there, you can see that the leadership of the church in Ephesus is a big issue. It's the leadership that are teaching untruth. And so, so much of the teaching in 1 and 2 Timothy is devoted to proper leaders and what they should do. The feel of the Corinthian letters is much more congregational. Now, I don't think that means they didn't have leaders, but I think it means that the problems in 1 Corinthians are congregation and leader problems, in a way that they need to be addressed together. So it's very interesting that he says very little about particular leaders in the congregation in Corinth. And I think that's probably because that's not where the particular problem is. And so you have to just pay attention to the circumstance um, in answering that kind of... Is that any help? Okay.
0: Um, Does the status of the weak and the strong... Um, ever change and connected to that. How do you address the situation where a person uses the status of being a weak brother as a power play? Yeah.
1: yeah e- those of you who've been involved in church for any length of time will know the weak ba- brother power play. Um, my own view is that Paul is not, Paul, I think Paul characterizes himself as the weak in this letter. And I think he's right with the weak. And I think weak here is a particularly Corinthian word. They look down on certain members of the congregation as weak because they have scruples about eating food in the idol temple for example Paul is right with the weak Paul has scruples about eating food in the idol temple it's not, it's not that the weak is wrong in having scruples about the idol temple the weak is correct <laughs> the weak is weak because the Corinthians think he's weak not because he's really weak do you see what I mean by that? Now often this, um, particularly in relation also to Roman, la- later chapters of Romans, the, the weaker brother thing is pulled out. You're, you're trampling all over my conscience if you do that. Um, I think often that argument is wheeled out because of um, stubborn, intransigent unwillingness to change in view of things that you know are right. <laughs> and I think it is always good to be sensitive to one another's consciences and if people have real objections about things in church you cannot ride rough shod over them and be godly. At the same time sometimes their conscience needs to be realigned. Sometimes. Um, conscience is not the ultimate authority for the Christian. The word of God is the ultimate authority for the Christian. And It is not good to trample over our brothers and sisters' consciences, but conscience needs to be re-educated often. And conscience can be falsely sensitive and untruly committed to a certain course of action. And so I would say that both those who would put themselves in the I'm the weak, my troubles, my consciences have been trampled on. And the people who want something different to happen need to re-examine themselves. Claiming the weak card is not a passport to getting your own way. Neither is claiming the strong card and the majority card. Just because the majority thinks something's right doesn't mean it's the right thing. Um... Can I just say that's a potential... I've I've worked in churches with congregational government for many years. That is the weakness of congregational government, that we can think that the majority is right. And that's really unhelpful biblically. Yes, we have to make decisions together, and sometimes we do have to go with the majority, but the majority is not always right because it's the majority. So let me say, if you have differences in your congregation about particular issues... Both parties need to continue to examine the scriptures and both parties need to continue to work on the solution. And it is not enough to say but you can't trample on my conscience. You have to say is my conscience correct in this matter? See what I mean by that? Yes, Christians have to seek for for, for unanimity if they can find it. Uh, You almost never can find unanimity. Um, but both weak and strong need to need to examine themselves uh, d- and do not play the weak card just because you want to be stubborn that's a really ungodly thing to do
0: um, what does Paul mean uh, when he says you will destroy your brother does, does he mean to provoke him to sin against his conscience or does it simply mean to offend him Um, All
1: right, where are we? We're in chapter 8, 9. Just turn back to chapter 8, 9. Chapter 8, verse 10. If anyone sees you who have knowledge, uh, knowledge in inverted commas, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, in inverted commas, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Um, This is obviously a verse that raises loads of problem. Can the one for whom Christ died be destroyed? Um, Can somebody lose their salvation? Can somebody fall away? Uh, I don't think that's the question that Paul is addressing here, first of all. I think he's just making the observation that if your brother sees you going to the idol temple, they may pack in being a Christian. And they might pack in being being a Christian for obvious reasons. Either they will think that you, maybe the person who told them the gospel, are in fact not a person of integrity because they see you going to the idol temple. I think Paul would agree with that actually. I think Paul would say it's not a move move of integrity to go to the idol temple if you're a Christian. He tells them to run away from such things. Uh, Or they might be tempted to go back there and just fall into the old life. Now can I say, observably, there are people who seem in every way to be Christian who turn away from being Christian. And sometimes they do that because their brothers and sisters cause them to stumble. And I think all that Paul is saying here is, I don't think he's dealing with the the secret. How do I know if anybody's a real believer? Question. I think he's simply saying, if you guys go to the idol temple, you have the potential to end up destroying that which the Lord Jesus has built up. It's an antichrist action that to to. And it's not just, going to the idol temple is not just a matter of you and God. In fact, nothing in the Christian life is just a matter of you and God. You always need to think, how will this affect my brother and sister? And what the Corinthians are doing here is just saying, well, it's all about me. I'm free. I have the freedom to go. Paul says, that's a stupid thing to do if you're really a Christian. And what he's trying to get them to do is to think, actually, everything you do as a Christian has effects on other believers, for good or for ill. Don't think that if you do that, uh, you're not going against the Lord's will. Does anybody want to ask qualifying questions about that? Lots more to say. Yep. Yep. Well, I'm not sure of the answer to that. He is, I think what he is saying is you are destroying what the Lord is building up. Now whether that means he's talking about somebody falling into sin or losing their salvation, it could be either or both of those. I think the question is not, um, he's not dealing with the once saved, always saved question. He's dealing with the effect of your behavior on your brother or sister. It is, it is evidently true, is it not? Evidently true that you'll find people who've stopped being Christian. They were once professing. They no longer are. And they've done that because of the behavior of their fellow brothers and sisters. It's evidently true that you can see that. Now, what's going on behind the scenes, whether they'll turn back in the end whether they ever really knew christ in the beginning that's a whole different matter that you can't see but it is evidently true that people turn away and sometimes because of what their brother and sisters do and that's what he's 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 urging them to be responsible about their behavior because that kind of thing happens Well he might, he might be saying that and lots of people argue that. I actually think that he's um, I think the weak brother is right here. I think the weak brother is theologically correct. Because uh, remember the Corinthian idea there is only one God and the idol is a nothing. Is that true? It is. Is it the only truth about the idol It is not. It is not the only truth about the idol. Because uh, Paul describes elsewhere in the letter, I do not want you to be partners with demons. There is stuff going on at the idol temple. Yes, the idol is a no god. But is the demonic involved there? Too right it is. You were held captive to mute idols. There's a spiritual thing going on there. So the Corinthian idea that there is one god and the idol is a no god is true but not the whole picture. And Paul brings the whole picture to bear on the argument. It's dangerous going to the idol temple if you're a believer. It's bad for you. Don't go there. Is he saying that, do you think? Where does he say that? Yep. No yep. I think that's quoting the Corinthian b idea back to them, and it's true, but only half the truth. But he's making he's making little the idol thing is the part He seems to be saying the fact that this offering you meet that should be offered to idols. Yes. I, I get the impression that you say it's okay, it's your mind it's your mindset when you're eating the food. What are you thinking? What what yes. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. But he does make a distinction between the food that's been sacrificed to idols and going to the idol temple to eat. He doesn't give the same instructions for those. He says, don't go to the idol temple to eat. You can eat food sacrificed to idols in some circumstances. You can buy it in the meat market. You can eat it with your friend as long as your friend doesn't raise the issue. If your friend raises the issue, this has been bought in the idol temple or this has been bought this has been food sacrificed to idols then you've got to not eat it do you see there's a difference between those um so the corinthian idea is true but limited the idol is a nothing all meat belongs to god that's true but not the whole picture uh the context of eating matters and and so on hope that's some help yep
0: Coming near to an end here. Uh, hi, Andy. What is your opinion uh, on a Christian when they die? Do they go straight to heaven or is there a place of waiting? <coughs> All right. Um, <coughs> uh,
1: there have characteristically been two positions among Bible believing Christians on this, and both of them have some evidence. Um, Jesus says to the thief on the cross today you'll be with me in paradise which sounds pretty immediate really doesn't it Um, uh, and therefore it has been characteristic for people to say when you die there is an awareness of the Lord's presence, paradise, whatever you might call it, that precedes the resurrection on the last day, the the resurrection of the body, the transformation of life, all that kind of thing. I think personally that fits best with the data. Some people say you die and your next conscious thought is the last day and the resurrection of the dead. I think that somewhat ignores the things like the thief on the cross and the today. And my des- Paul's, my desire is to be with Christ and that's far better. I think he assumes that when he dies he will be in some sense with Christ. I take it that that, you know, technically reformed theologians have tend to call that the intermediate state. I take it that that intermediate state is not the fully fledged final article, and actually, it's relatively unimportant compared with the fully fledged final article. And I think one of the reasons that this stuff is not emphasised that much in Scripture is that the eyes are all in the last day, and the recreation of everything, and the the way the place where things are finally going to, um, yeah.
0: Well, um, we're going to bring that time to an end. I know there was questions that we didn't have time to answer. Um, and if you have opportunity before the day is out, you can feel free to to, gr- to grab Andrew and, and talk to him. Um, just as a little final uh, blur again, you recommended some books for further reading. Would you care to highlight those again and maybe some commentaries for those who are interested in a, a more technical... Okay.
1: Um, all right, um various things at different levels I've found uh, useful um, at a more popular level um, Paul Barnett uh, has written a really helpful little commentary uh on one Corinthians I think it's published by christian Focus i can't remember the name of it. But that's a shorter, a shorter commentary at a popular level. Vaughan Roberts's book, uh, which I've skimmed, is I think a very helpful introduction. I mean, it's based on sermons on the uh, sermons in the book. Very th- thoughtful and helpful and careful as he usually is. Um, at a more technical level, um, what's most helpful? Well, if you really want the big daddy of them all, uh, Anthony Thistleton's commentary on 1 Corinthians, which is a commentary in the Greek text and is a seriously fat book. You know, it's really big. It's really big. And it deals with every exegetical detail you could possibly imagine. And if you've got the stamina to read through the detail, if you want, it, if you want to work really hard on the text, that probably at the moment is the ultimate reference point. But it is hard work. Um, Paul Barnett's done a lot of anything written by Paul Barnett is is worth getting hold of Uh, he's an Australian he's done a lot of work on 1 and 2 Corinthians Um, he's written a very um, what's that book called I think it's called The Corinthian Question which is a book examining what's going on behind the scenes in the Corinthian letters and that's quite a helpful it's not a, a detailed commentary but it's quite a helpful what's going on. The kind of thing I've been trying to do this weekend, what's the, the problem that runs through the Corinthian letter and, 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 and how does the letter work? Um, that's quite a helpful place to start. Um, Those are the things I think I find most helpful. Oh, and Don Carson's stuff. Uh, Don Carson's stuff is really good. Uh, again, not dealing with the, the letter as a whole, but the Cross and Christian Ministry And the the what's what's it called? Showing the spirit. um, uh, uh, Those are really good books and well worth a look. Yeah. Anybody else find anything useful? Okay. Yeah, those are good.
0: Thank you, uh, Andy. Um, Let's give Andy a, a round of applause.